Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who was praised for his leadership during the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic, faces another allegation of misconduct while in office. As the UK continues to digest the series of allegations made by Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, in her interview with Oprah Winfrey this week, we'll assess Britain's relationship with its monarchy and we'll examine the power of the public service announcement as all but one of the US's former presidents and first ladies urge all Americans to get their COVID-19 vaccines. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 11th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan who's in New York City for us and Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello who's in London. Carlotta, Henry, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Carlotta, we all are almost at the end of another week so how's the week shaped up for you there in London so far? It's been a lovely week, Tom, not to go immediately to the weather, but the fact that it's been sunny makes such a difference in terms of productivity and just wanting to be outdoors, really. But yeah, it's been a busy week. A, a few days um, ago, I was at, at Midori House and it was really nice to see so many of our colleagues back as well, uh, you know, working on new things for the magazine, new projects for the radio. Uh, it is overall so far not bad and I don't want to jinx <laughs> the future but it is some hope and the horizon and hearing more and more colleagues saying oh yesterday I got my vaccine you know gives us a bit of hope I know that I, for me it will still be a while but I don't mind it's just nice to see some of the world moving forward around you. And Henry how about you does it feel as though the world is moving forward slightly from New York City where you are? Absolutely. I think spring is in the air. My bold spot, which was a liability in the colder weather, leaking huge amounts of body heat has turned into a uh, little solar panel absorbing as much vitamin D as it can. So uh, I'm in a good place this week. Glad to hear it, Henry. Well, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, great to have you both of us on the programme today. And Henry, let's begin with you and the scandals that are enveloping uh, New York State's Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's currently battling several allegations of misconduct during his time in office. And yesterday, uh, the US media is reporting that a serious new allegation has now been levied against him, hasn't it? That's right, yeah. So yesterday an aide to Governor Cuomo, alleged that he groped her, had groped her, uh, when they were both in the uh, executive mansion, uh, his his official residence. Um, it's considered to be the most serious, so far, of six total allegations of inappropriate sexual behaviour by six different women, some of them current or former state employees, all of whom uh, have, have come forward in, in recent weeks to make uh, the allegations against the governor. Now, the allegation has been forwarded, along with the rest of them, to New York State Attorney General Letitia James. She's going to conduct an investigation into these allegations uh, that is likely to take many months. Uh, Cuomo has denied this allegation, uh, he has flatly stated that he's never touched anybody inappropriately. He did, earlier this month, acknowledge that he may have made remarks that made people uncomfortable, but said it was unintentional, uh, and that he is 
so far refusing to resign in spite of claims or demands rather from some politicians within the Democratic Party for him to do so. Now, these harassment claims aren't the only crisis that Cuomo is facing at the moment. He's also reeling from the fallout of a report that was also issued by uh, Letitia James that his administration underreported deaths from coronavirus in the state's nursing homes by as much as 50%. And on top of that uh, serious uh, uh, policy uh, 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 misconduct, there were also reports of bullying behaviour on the part of Como, uh, excuse me, Cuomo and, and some of his staff members uh, that came out in the wake of that report. So the governor finds himself mired in a kind of tempest of, of scandal at the moment. It's a jarring turn of affairs uh, or a turn of fortune for him. You'll remember how uh, beloved he was by people not only in New York, but across the country. A year ago, he was considered to be one of the uh, local uh, political leaders who was standing in or coming in to fill the power vacuum that many feel President Trump had left by not responding to the onset of the pandemic vigorously enough uh, with stern leadership and, and clarity of vision. Uh, and, you know, his stock was very high. It's now plummeted. Um, so while most uh, Democratic voters, according to a recent poll, do not think that he should resign and want to wait for this official investigation uh, to be completed in full, the official investigation into sexual harassment claims, his, he, he certainly finds himself embattled uh, just months after his position seemed unassailable. And Carlotta, to move away from the, the specific array of allegations against New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo to another US governor, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, he's facing his own pressures at the moment and he gave his annual State of the State address in California last night. Uh, let's hear some of what he said now from inside the Dodgers baseball stadium in Los Angeles uh, which has been transformed into one of the largest mass vaccination centres in the United States. We won't be defined by this moment. We'll be defined by what we do because of it. After all, we are California. We don't wait for someone else to show us the way forward. We go first and we go boldly. We led in gay rights, gun rights, and criminal justice reform. And now we lead on combating COVID. You know, from the earliest days of this pandemic, California trusted in science and data, and we met the moment. That was Governor Gavin Newsom speaking during his State of the State address in California last night. Carlotta Henry characterised Andrew Cuomo in New York's stock as having slumped um, a year after those sort of rave views from the way he was uh, dealing with the pandemic in its early stages in New York State. It's fair to say that Gavin Newsom's stock is, is pretty low at the moment for several reasons too, isn't it? 
Yes, Tom. And in many places such like California, you know, we've seen city leadership and state leadership um, be questioned because of the pandemic. And this state of the state of dress came, you know, basically bang on one year since California entered, you know, the first set of restrictions um, for COVID. Um, Throughout the pandemic, Newsom has been highly criticized for often confusing uh, regulations about what can be open, what should be closed, uh, about the return to schools. Um, So a lot of people were looking forward to this speech. The location was also quite significant. As you mentioned, he gave his address at the Dodger Stadium uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, It is an important choice of location on twofold. Firstly, because, you know, this not only is one of the biggest uh, baseball stadiums in the country and, um, you know, the home of last year's World Series champions. Uh, Baseball is a huge thing in the US uh, and that has been turned into the busiest and biggest max vaccination sites in the US and before that, uh, one of the biggest testing centers for COVID. But also because it is in Los Angeles, you know, this uh, Gavin Newsom usually delivers his annual address in Sacramento, the state's capital. So the fact that he decided to head a bit south, uh, perhaps to try to captivate a bit more um, his uh, electorate in Los Angeles, who have been highly critical of uh, the former San Francisco mayor um, in uh, throughout the last year, uh, there is some significance too in choosing to you know step away from his office in Sacramento um, and choose this location. Now, in terms of the biggest takeaways from um, his speech, it is very much what we would expect a bit of empathy that was much needed about the tremendous cost of human lives during the pandemic, you know, not only people that have sadly passed away due to COVID, but also the human sacrifices made by many um, to try to um, reduce the infection rates uh, in the state. You know, nearly 55,000 Californians died of COVID. Over 3.5 million have been infected. Those are huge numbers. And, you know, um, 7 million people in California received unemployment checks or have been receiving them since last March. So the actual toll of the pandemic on the state is really massive. And, uh, of course, there is now this hope that some semblance of, you know, return to a bit of normality uh, might help Newsom um, uh, because there's been a discussion between unions and teachers associations to gradually reopen schools from next month. There's reports today that some cinemas and theatres in LA will could probably start reopening um, very soon at limited capacity. Um, and there's also sa- similar plans for the hospitality sector. So, a return to normality off the back of this speech could play in Newsom's favor. But until then, it's very much the feeling that he still needs to prove to Californians that um, all of this was, you know, made sense and was worth it in a sense of the different um, approaches to lockdown restrictions, the not being sure um, about uh, how to how hard to go uh, in terms of that. And just as a final note, note, Newsom got also under fire a few months ago um, 
because he was invited to, you know, a birthday dinner and was uh, photographed uh, outside eating it at a restaurant with a group of friends when that wasn't um, necessarily allowed um, and very much highlighted this idea that rules apply to some and don't apply to others. Um, you know, this is, of course, something he's still battling from and trying to, of course, has apologized and trying to come out of it, but uh, it is not an easy image. Uh, California uh, is a state where... This pandemic really has shown that if you have the money and you are wealthy, your access to and your ability, sorry, your ability to um, come out of this better is determined by your wealth. Absolutely. Well, next year on the late edition, the UK is continuing to digest the fallout from the controversial interview given by Harry and Meghan, the Duke and the Duchess of Sussex, to Oprah Winfrey, which is broadcast in the US on Sunday. Well, earlier today in the UK, Harry's brother, Prince William, refuted claims explicitly that racism existed within his family. That followed a more measured conciliatory statement from Queen Elizabeth on Tuesday, which described the allegations made in the interview as a private family matter. Well, how will this dramatic week for the UK's royal family affect its relationship with its subjects in the UK and further afield? Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, explains. Earlier this week, a retired British Army officer explained that he and his wife weren't getting on too well with a few members of his immediate family. I had three conversations with my grandmother and two conversations with my father before he stopped taking my calls. Alert listeners will already have spotted what we're doing here, which is to say that, yes, this is going to be one of those things where a highfalutin media outlet rises piously above commenting directly on the actual thing and instead loftily pontificates over steepled fingers about what it all means. Before we get too superciliously anthropological about the teeth gnashing and garment rending currently besetting Britain, this does seem a good time to recognise a truth rarely acknowledged by the media, which is that most people don't really care about most things. Doubtless there are many millions of subjects of these sceptred isles who responded to Oprah Winfrey's interview with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex in the sane and proper manner, i.e. by muttering, huh, and proceeding with their day. We're smiling and doing our job, but we're both just trying to hold on. Welcome to the Great British Bake Off. But, and watch us now eat a nice big slice of that cake which we are also having, when a substantial or at least voluble demographic of a given country freaks all the way out about a given thing, it assuredly means something, if often nothing good. I'm angry to the point of bawling over today. I'm sickened by what I've just had to watch. At which, and yes, a point will be arriving shortly, hang in there, we should also be clear regarding which specific given country we're talking about. Because this isn't really about the United Kingdom or even Great Britain. There is pretty solidly entrenched resentment of the royal family in Wales and Scotland. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! and obviously outright hostility in portions of Northern Ireland. 
What we are witnessing is a certain segment of England having a nervous breakdown about history, identity and tradition, which may remind you of a recent referendum and several ensuing years of epically tedious political melodrama. The, the country's in a total mess and we need to have our own independence and it'll be hard at first, I think. Post-interview polling does indeed suggest a congruence between views on this latest royal-related hullabaloo and views on Brexit. Those who voted Leave are overwhelmingly unsympathetic to the Duke and Duchess. Those who voted Remain more understanding, but also much likelier still to be undecided or uninterested. Also, as with Brexit, views sorted by age break absolutely as you'd expect. Where one strata of England is concerned, it's hard not to see a certain displaced anxiety in play here. At some point in the next few years, a different face will begin appearing on British stamps and banknotes. It is difficult to overstate how strange this will be. Queen Elizabeth II has reigned for 69 years, a stolid and reliable fixture during a period in which her country and its role in the world has otherwise changed beyond recognition, as may be gauged by, among many other metrics, comparing her first Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, we shall fight on the beaches, with the rather less august figure likely to be her last, we'd have had the consolation of watching the Speaker being forced to eat a kangaroo testicle. Or by noting that her father, King George VI, also answered to the title of Emperor of India. Nevertheless, while so much else about Britain has been utterly transformed, there is, outside those aforereferenced portions of Northern Ireland which have other ambitions, negligible serious Republican sentiment at large in UK politics. Whether they realise it or not, those English people happier in the past than the present may already have begun to grieve. They may also have taken Prince Harry's recent decisions personally. Harry, surely, was supposed to be their guy, the Jack the Laddish roisterer who later served his country's military with distinction fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan, now married to some foreign actress and talking about his feelings to Americans. But indulging which and other theories besides that recent events have stirred up such potent folk myths as Princess Diana and Edward VIII, for example, may be to overthink it. Many astute chroniclers of England's foibles, Evelyn Waugh not least among them, have posited that the real, if rarely admitted, attitude of the English to royal scandal is one of enthralled, unbridled, agog enjoyment. While we're thinking about Venn diagrams of opinion, there has always been a sprawling overlap between those who righteously decry the spite, prurience and pettiness of Britain's tabloid media and those who consume it most avidly. Therefore, it may be apposite to cede the last words to Thomas Babington Macaulay, the 19th century historian and politician. He was writing about a merely aristocratic brouhaha, involving Lord Byron, as they often did at the time, rather than a royal one, but his point holds. Once in six or seven years, Macaulay jeered, our virtue becomes outrageous. We cannot suffer the laws of religion and decency to be violated. We must make a stand against vice. Macaulay prefaced this mock horror with the observation, we know no spectacle so ridiculous as the British public in one of its periodical fits of morality. 
For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller there reporting for this week's edition of the Foreign Desk Explainer here on Monocle 24. Well, finally here on the late edition, today marks one year since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. And in that year, public service announcements have become a firm fixture for many of us in many parts of the world, with government messages urging us to stay at home, mascots explaining how to maintain a physical distance, or hourly radio broadcasts with guidelines on how to wash our hands. Well now, in the United States, all living former presidents and first ladies, Bart Donald and Melania Trump, have come together for a new television advert, urging all Americans to get vaccinated. And we can hear that commercial, which runs at a minute long now. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. No, it's up to you. The voice of former US President Jimmy Carter there, uh, closing that commercial by all living former US presidents, uh, excluding Donald Trump and Melania Trump, uh, to get their jab. Henry, you are in the US. Uh, What did you make of this um, campaign, including the former presidents and first ladies, as part of a way to bolster the vaccine programme in the US? How is it being played out there, the, the response to it? I'll answer your initial question, which is what I thought of this particular advert, which is, I thought the intention is uh, admirable. I thought the execution was deeply weird. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if you've watched the uh, the full video of the uh, of the ad, Thomas, but kind of what struck me is that there doesn't seem to be a consistent production technique for interviewing all of the former presidents, which I kind of understandable. They're very busy people. It's difficult to get them in one room. But Bush... Bush is, is with his wife in a room with a blue background that resembles nothing so much as a, uh, you know, when you have like school photographs taken and they have that like blue background on, on, on a big like board that they wheel behind the kids kind of looks like that. Clinton's looking off camera somewhere in like a, what looks to be a, a kind of think tank office, which it makes sense that he might have been in when they interviewed him. Obama's charismatic as always. Uh, 96-year-old Jimmy Carter, respect, but... Uh, doesn't exactly instill a sense of uh, hopeful vigour uh, for for uh, the nation uh, to to look after. I don't know. I'm not sure how much of a difference this 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 particular ad is going to make to uh, virus. Uh, excuse me, vaccine uptake in America, which is low, which is low, and there's a lot of people in America. An awful lot of people, both relative to the population and in absolute terms, who, for one reason or another, do not want to get vaccinated. It is a a major issue in the country. 
Look, I'm not as pessimistic as Henry. <laughs> I can tell you that. I think the the video is actually quite sweet. And I, I have the same understanding as you, Tom, uh, in terms of them being at the respective vaccination clinics. I do think that these videos really matter. And you, you mentioned there Dolly Parton, who, you know, she contributed one, with one million dollars to as a donation towards a COVID vaccine that now is a reality and is saving lives. And that's the sort of thing that then, you know, having her in a video, yes, jokingly changing the lyrics from Jolene to vaccine and singing it after receiving her own vaccine might seem a bit gimmicky, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, you need a bit of... um, a bit of more happiness and light in the middle of all the darkness that has been the past 12 months. But to go a bit more serious as an answer to your question, these things do matter. And the perfect example of that in reality is what we're seeing here in Europe across Germany and France and other nations where the fact that we have that the leaders, particularly, particularly Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, mentioned how one vaccine might not be as good as the others for over 65s, now means they have a huge issue in convincing people that actually they should go and get the vaccine. Um, So statements and gestures and, you know, funny videos from leaders do matter in changing how people perceive uh, vaccines at this moment. So I think it was a great thing. And it was the first time, I guess, in the past four and a half years that we've seen any sort of... um, bipartisan initiative. I, for one, do not remember seeing uh, Republicans and Democrats together over the past four years addressing um, uh, the nation in that way. Uh, So that was also very, very nice. Well, Carlotta Ribello and Henry Rees Sheridan, thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Today's programme was edited in London by Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Urbanist, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today. I'm Tomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. 